Hi everyone, I am um, <clears throat> recording this from home. I got home and realised there were a few questions that I hadn't had time to respond to that I think would be helpful uh, for people at uh, later points in their practice. And there were a few other technical um, instructions that also I think would be helpful uh, for most people at some point or other as they go forward with jhana practice, and a couple of general things. Most of uh, what I want to go into kind of falls into the category, not all of it, but most of it kind of falls into the category of uh, working in sort of grey areas, jhanic grey areas. So, as I mentioned, sometimes when the jhana opens Um, for the first few experiences, very intense, very clear, seemingly effortless. Um, One's very much in the jhana and and might feel like there's nothing to do, nothing to improve on even. And as one gains more experience in and out of that jhana and gets more familiar with that particular jhanic territory, whichever it is, whatever jhana we're talking about, then uh, there do appear times where it becomes apparent in one's practice, that sometimes it's very clear, very pure, if you like, a pure jhanic experience. Other times we're sort of um, in the jhanic territory, but not quite sort of para-jhanic territory, or kind of half in, half out, or on the edge, or as I mentioned, there's um, we're mostly in, but some very subtle hindrances are kind of yapping quietly at the borders of consciousness or there's an area of the body that won't clear up or these kinds of things. Um, or Well, there's, there's many things, but it falls into that kind of territory, the, the grey area, working in the grey areas or transitional states. Not everything, but a lot of things. Before that, though, there's a couple of general things. Um, and then some, something about soul making in jhana. So uh, let's see, let's see how we do. So first general thing is again to uh, make clear that I would say it's more optimal for the way we're practicing jhanas to not fall into a sort of strict, unbroken rhythm of formal practice: sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk. Uh, 45 minutes, 45 minutes, one hour, one hour, whatever, however it's divided up. Um, of course, sometimes that will feel like it's the most it's the most helpful rhythm at that time. But the key thing here is, does it feel like it is? Again, am I listening? Am I being responsive? Am I being attentive? Am I tuning my uh, practice rhythm at the moment, right now? Not for this retreat, but right now, for this morning, or whatever it is, or this afternoon, or this evening. Am I tuning it to, to what feels best, what feels like it's actually most fertile? So, you know, sometimes if you if you sit and, and the jhana's coming and it all feels really good, you can go way beyond uh, one hour, way, way, way beyond. Just sit in an unlimited way. You run out of batteries, try again. Try to get the jhana again without getting up, maybe two or three times. Sit as long as you can. Not with any forcing, but just sit as long as it works, as long as it feels good. And the same with walking practice, and the same with standing practice. Unless for some reason you only have 20 minutes or 40 minutes or whatever it is, I know I'll just go 40 minutes to, to walk now or whatever. And that's all fine. But basically there needs to be this 
responsive attunement of the rhythms of our practice. And we're really finding out, feeling into, getting a sense for, and finding out what's the most helpful right now. And breaking out of a kind of rigid, tight, uh, predefined, preset mold of, of a rhythm uh, for, for practice for different postures. This is also part, as I mentioned, you know, because the day needs to breathe and there needs to be uh, space for appreciation and beauty and a little bit of exercise and open heartedness and all that. So I'm reiterating that, but I also want to say that when some of you will start exploring insight ways of looking as a, as a sort of huge um, stream of investigation in, in your practice, and when that opens up, I would say the same principle applies there. You can have times where it's sit, walk, sit, walk, um, very kind of rigid and predefined. That's absolutely fine. But you also really want times where it's this more fluid, attentive, open um, scheduling that's much more responsive. Because again there, in, in the way that I would, uh, or the way I most commonly teach insight practice, which is through different insight ways of looking, learning them, employing them, seeing what happens with them. Again, we still want that, um, we still want the day to breathe. We still want space in the heart and the soul for appreciation and beauty and to be touched um, and the open-heartedness. We also need uh, space to notice the after-effects on perception. So whether we're doing jhanic practice as it goes deeper and they become more common and we know to look for them and look out for them very gently without pressure, but also in insight ways of looking practice. Um, the, again, very um, potentially very powerful, very noticeable after effects on perception there as well. But there's another reason when we come to insight ways of looking, or practicing insight ways of looking, is that partly the way that process works in this way of teaching insight meditation is is not it's not through the continuity through the accumulation of a sort of power of mindfulness through just being completely continuous with the mindfulness so sit walk sit walk unbroken go to lunch continue the mindfulness great way of practice and a certain intensity and this continuity of mindfulness will uh, be developed hopefully that way and through that continuity of mindfulness, it can illuminate certain things. And so that's great. But an alternative way of going about things is when we practice, and actually pr- deliberately practicing different insight ways of looking, then I actually need the comparison. So I need to practice this insight way of looking, and then actually, in a way, let it go, and compare the difference in perception when I let it go. Now I'm just back to a normal consciousness. I'm not particularly trying to, of course there's a way of looking, because there's always a way of looking, but I'm not particularly trying this or that way of looking. And it's through the comparison that I learn about the dependent arising. Yes, I'm not trying to accumulate so much mindfulness that I then perceive the truth, because there isn't one truth. I'm practicing a way of looking, and then I let go of practicing that way of looking, because when I because then, when I practice the way of looking, I notice what it does to perception. I notice the sense of things. When I stop practicing, I notice a different sense of things. So in a way, we actually need uh, a looser, or rather less continuous, 
um, schedule of practice or intention of practice um, can can be continuous for long periods. Absolutely fine, but it does need some some kind of coming out of the insight way of looking and maybe just going into a more normal uh, consciousness without a deliberate intention so that we can see through comparison the effect of the insight way of looking. So it's not that it always has to be like that, but sometimes that's part of it too. There's less less of this emphasis on continuity. I see when I practice this insight way of looking, I should see in 10 minutes, in 20 minutes, in an hour, whatever it is, it should be obvious what's happening there. Obvious its effects on perception. Okay, so that's one general thing. A second general thing is about posture. And I mentioned on the retreat, you know, eventually you can kind of access jhana and you can stay in a jhana in, in almost any posture. Posture becomes very, very uh, not important. But before that time, before the practice has really ripened to that um, stage, posture is, is actually very important, particularly at the beginning. And I was encouraging in the early, some of the early guided meditations, etc., really to um, sense in to the poise and the balance in the posture and, and see if you can get a feel for, a sense for the beauty in the posture, the beauty, the dignity, the nobility that is reflected in, um, in the balance between uh, the chitta qualities that the posture manifests, expresses, reflects, between openness, relaxation, softness, and between brightness, alertness, uh, poise and intention, on the other hand. Um, But also just the sense of actual balance in the posture and the actual way that the mind, uh, when it encompasses the whole body, in, and includes the whole body space in a very alert, open, receptive, um, sensitive way, that the body, uh, the posture is actually very, very subtly affected. And subtle changes in the posture can affect our ability to have that kind of pervasive energy body awareness. So this is really, really important. If you're not familiar with this, it's really, as I said at the beginning of the retreat, it's really, really worth taking a little time to play with. I um, remember... Actually, Kirsten showing me a picture of her very young nieces, just three or four nieces, can't remember, um, meditating or sort of um, trying to meditate. They're very, very young, you know. And um, between, I think, ten and two and ten or something, their ages. But one of them, it was very interesting, and it was quite a young one. You could tell from the photograph that her awareness was um, spread throughout her body. They were all sitting cross-legged and sort of copying Kirsten kind of thing with their eyes shut. But the awareness was spread through the whole body, and you could feel from the photograph the the, the poise um, in the posture, but also in the attention, in the awareness. And you could feel the quality of the attention, and that it pervaded her whole body. And it was very um, alive and right there. It's quite interesting. Posture and chitta quality go very much together at first. And it's really worth playing with that if you're not familiar with it. I remember one of my first teachers 
in an interview um, many, many years ago, and I got called in for an interview. I think it was one of the first people they would call you in for interviews on these retreats, and I was one of the first people to get called in. I thought, oh, why am I first? And he said, you, he said I was a teenager, and he said, you're very out of contact with the earth, or something like that very out of contact with the ground. I had no idea what he was talking about, but it struck me as being, you know, really uh, a problem. Um, it sounded like a very serious ailment. Um, and so he played, he got, got me to sit and played with my posture a little bit. And, and, and at a certain point, uh, he just said, there, there. And I was not in, really in contact with my body at all back then. I had no training in that. I was probably pretty disconnected, as probably most teenagers in, in, that, in that generation were disconnected from my body. But he just said, there. So he was just gently moving my shoulders and my torso, and then he said, there. And really, it wasn't so much a visible kind of yogic, yoga-looking posture that he was responding to. He was responding to, he was feeling the way my posture helped my mind uh, kind of inhabit um, the whole body, the whole body space in a, in a, in a very uh, natural and open and upright and alert way. And I think that's what he was picking up on. Of course, to me, it just seemed like some kind of supernatural powers at the time. Now that I'm much more used to all this and teaching and energy body is very much what I emphasize, I can easily understand how it's possible to have that kind of awareness with another person, of another person, how their mind and body are right now, and how their energy body awareness is, and how, how the posture is perhaps allowing, supporting, or limiting certain possibilities psychically, certain possibilities for the chitta, or certain possibilities in relationship. I remember working with someone in an interview, and they were in a very difficult space uh, in, the, in their heart and mind and soul, and and was asking uh, them to come come into presence, to be in relationship with me, with the open heart and, and the sort of holding there. But I could tell that, uh, and, and encourage them to open them, open to their body experience as well. But I could tell that there was just something very very subtle in how they were sitting and holding their posture. So it didn't look like certainly nothing like being hunched over or contracted or some kind of obviously defensive posture. It was extremely subtle, extremely subtle. But that was enough to prevent her from uh, coming into a different relationship with herself, but also coming into a different relationship with me. And we played with that just a little bit, and it allowed the relational space, both with herself and with myself, to open up to possibilities that were just not available two minutes beforehand, five minutes beforehand. She had no idea, no idea. So the mind, the chitta, affects the, po- the body and the posture, and the posture affects the chitta. And this goes very, very subtle and deep until it begins to be uh, the, the you know, states of openness and states of jhana, states of samadhi and all that, um, and, and become much more familiar and they're less dependent on the posture being like this or like that to enable them. But maybe for quite a while for some people it is quite posture dependent. So it's really worth taking the time um, to to play with posture, even in, in kind of almost what might seem like microscopically subtle ways. That was part of what I was trying to encourage at the beginning of the retreat.
Okay, so let's run through a few uh, more specific uh, technical things. Um, as I said, this is most of these are relative to things kind of going well, but hitting some hitting some uh, tricky spots where it's just not quite coalescing or coming together. So we spoke about, you know, sometimes there can be pain, obviously, or discomfort in the body, or a sense of contraction or holding or tightness somewhere in the energy body, the physical body. And we spoke about the possibility of actually taking that difficult spot, and, for example, if you're doing metta practice as your base practice, actually imagining the center of the metta there. The metta is radiating from that very difficulty. Or imagining the breath coming in and out there. Or the energy, uh, that being the center of the um, energy body and the center of the breath energy, uh, if you like. Or the center of the light, the, the white luminosity or golden white luminosity that might pervade the energy body. And just almost exactly where you'd least expect it, uh, imagining, uh, imagining that to be the center of, of what you're trying to encourage. And sometimes it can turn out just as we'd least expect, counterintuitively, to be the loveliest place. But what I want to add now is similarly that um, if the mind is fuzzy or foggy or, or woolly, um, the mind, the head, and if you're tired, um, a similar thing can work. Imagine um, light there in the head. The head feels dull or there's that kind of tiredness behind the eyes or just the kind of wooliness there. Imagine... Um, the light centered there, if you're working with light as part of the energy body awareness. Imagine the breath energy coming in and out there, um, or uh, coming in or out through the top of the head, through there, um, the sides, the front, the back, whatever it is, or radiating, expanding out from that very willingness. So just the same principle, but applied to qualities of the chitta. Same principle as we we suggested with regard to um, bodily uh, discomforts or blocks, we can apply to um, discomforts or blocks in, in, the, in, the, in the chitta. And, and, and often they do feel in the head, so we just imagine them in the head. So one of, some of these are uh, quite basic. Some will apply to, to working in the territory of any... Some apply to uh, later jhanas, and I'll go into that you know, a specific jhana. Some of them apply to working outside of a jhana before, you know, even in jhanic territory. Or, as I said, they might, the jhana's kind of going okay, but there's a little bit that's not kind of brought into the into the fold of the jhana. It hasn't spread there. So some of these things will apply at any level. Um, and we just mentioned pain. So, again, uh, we mentioned on the retreat um, there might be, again, it could be any jhana, say second or first or whatever, the jhanic nimitta is there. I'm in the territory of the jhana, but it's not quite suffusing the whole body, and indeed there's some place in the body where there's pain or discomfort. So it's in in the jhanic territory, the nimitta has arisen, but it's not, I'm not fully uh, suffused, it's not, it's not fully suffused, and it's not fully, I'm not fully absorbed. Well, we don't always, it's not always best to hurry to spread or suffuse the nimitta. That may be exactly the right thing, but sometimes just pause a little bit, because we've got a few options. 
Sometimes it may be, yeah, just go ahead, try and spread it in the ways that we uh, listed the possible methods of spreading the nimitta through the bodily space to pervade and permeate, as the Buddha says, suffuse and saturate the whole body space. So sometimes, space that's, sometimes that's the best thing to do, and just go ahead and do that. Sometimes, though, don't rush to do that. Stay enjoying where it's okay first. Find those okay places where there is PT, where there is um, the sense of happiness if you're working in the second jhana. Um, stay there, enjoy that more first before you think about spreading. Sometimes just in the staying and enjoying it will spread, as we said on the retreat. And then there are other options too. We talked about playing with perception. Many of you had a lot of success with that. There's pain, there's discomfort. Can I actually just imagine it? begin to see it, play with the perception, the malleability of, of the chitta, of the perception, of the way of looking, and see this pain, see this discomfort as PT or as sukha or as stillness or whatever the jhanic nimitta is that's possible uh, to, uh, to have there when we change the perception. But basically there's different options. We don't always need to rush to try and suffuse as the first option. But they're all good. Sometimes um, we might be you now something specific to the second jhana. We might be working in the second jhana, and we've known like very effusive happiness and intense happiness, and really, uh, you know, grinning for hours on end, almost so that the face hurts afterwards. Um, other times, um, uh, experiences with the jhana less intense happiness, or or something else. So for instance, one might be in the second jhana, but it's not quite stabilized. Something about it feels a bit flimsy. Well, it may need a bit more body in it. A bit more, uh, put body in inverted commas, a bit more piti. Maybe need a bit more of that kind of body energy, body awareness. So what you can do you're working in the second jhana, but it's it's a bit flimsy, it's a bit weak somehow, it's not quite stabilized perhaps. There could be any of those issues. And then you can just dip back to the first jhana. What you're effectively doing is mixing more piti and more body pleasure in. And just dip back, it could be for a few moments, it could, could be for a few minutes. Sometimes these things work just for a few moments, just dip back. Get more body in the experience, more piti, and then come back um, and see how the second jhana goes. So this is actually, uh, we can broaden this and uh, actually extend it to make a more general principle. So again, uh, we're talking about when there has been uh, lots of really clear, deep, pure experiences of a certain jhana, and as, as you're working more, trying to marinate and develop mastery with that jhana, in and out, in and out, getting very familiar, and sometimes it doesn't go so well, it doesn't stabilize, or it's hard to enter it fully on certain occasions. So, if that's the case with a certain jhana, whichever jhana it is, you can, um, in order to stabilize it or to enter more fully, sometimes, apart from just working in all the ways we've talked about with sassy and all that, sometimes uh, it can help to go back, as we just discussed, from the second jhana to the first, but it could be, this could be fourth to the third, or whichever jhana. Just go back one step, or if you already know the jhana ahead, if you've already got familiar with the jhana ahead, so say, today I'm 
I, I, let's say I know four jhanas, but right now I'm working on the third jhana. Well, I can, uh, and it's not quite stabilizing, I can't quite enter it fully, I could just dip back to the second jhana. It might be for really a few moments um, or, or, or longer. Or I could go to the fourth jhana if I already know it. I, stip, I skip forward. It's the opposite of what I assume. I say, it's not going well, I'd better go to a simpler level. But sometimes I go, I go further to the fourth jhana. Again, it might just be for a few moments, literally dipping the chitta and the body in um, for a few moments um, and then coming out. Or it could be longer, a few minutes even. Um, or, you know, if you're trying to stabilize and deepen uh, the fourth and it's not going so well, but you're familiar with it, you could go back to the third or, or to one of the formless realms and then back to the fourth. Okay, so this is a general principle here. Um, skillful working when things feel like they're not going so well on those occasions. And they're still going well, but they're not kind of, they could be better. Um, I mentioned, so here's one thing particular to the third jhana, I mentioned that sometimes what happens at this level if, is that the breath becomes kind of in the stillness that emerges at the third jhana. It's like it allows the breath to perhaps become sensible again. In all the piti and the sukha, it might be that we hadn't noticed the breath. We've let the breath go, and the piti and sukha have become the primary nimittas. Uh, which is a completely fine way of working, as we've emphasized. Um, but sometimes, not only does the breath organically, naturally become more sensible because there's more calmness, sometimes as well, it may actually help um, the third jhana to bring back uh, an attention to the breath. And at this point, the breath should be very, very subtle, very, very delicate. And like we said, it's the very movement of the breath, breath is peacefulness. The very movement of the breath there, subtle, delicate, gentle breath, is peacefulness, like those uh, strands of seaweed in, in, the, in the lagoon, just gently, kind of, so subtle, they're swaying peacefully. There's movement, movement of the breath, but the very movement is peacefulness. And uh, so sometimes deliberately, coming back to find the breath again. It may emerge, as I said, just organically we begin to notice it and include it, or sometimes uh, that can help deepen and consolidate the third jhana if you feel like you need it. Again, and this uh, is more general point, um, particularly as we go into the deeper jhanas and we have a sense of secondary nimittas. Uh, which we've talked about. So, for instance, the secondary nimittas just of release and relief. Um, these are, I think, important ingredients of the jhanic mix, and any experienced jhanic medicine will notice these things, and should notice these things. And so they're not primary nimittas, but sometimes noticing them. So again, I'm, I'm working in a jhana, it's not quite coming together. It's definitely, I'm definitely in the territory, but it's just not quite coalescing, um, not quite fully getting into it as much as I know is possible. So sometimes, actually then, beginning, just, just very gently, very delicately, without any pressure, just looking for the, the, the secondary nimitas, say, of relief and release. 
and noticing them and just for, for a little bit focusing on them and enjoying them, even just for a few moments, that can allow uh, the whole jhana to deepen or consolidate like that. So that's also a very skillful, sort of subtle movement of the attention. We're working. What will help here? It's almost like we're taking that relief and release, or whatever the secondary nimitta is, and kind of using it as part of the glue, part of the stitching, to help cohere the the jhanic experience at that at that point. Um, so we talked now something particular to the fourth jhana. We talked about uh, oftentimes there is a a brightness there, white golden light, and that's quite central. The stillness is the light. The light is the stillness. Sometimes that can feel like a kind of vertical column of bright stillness through the center of the body space. Sometimes it can feel all around you. Sometimes it can be this. It's not quite all around you yet, and there's just. Um, or one can imagine this vertical column of bright white light that is the stillness. The stillness is the light, the light is the stillness. And it's right up through the center of the energy body space. And one can begin to allow that or even encourage that light to melt outwards, melt outwards from that central vertical column. And in doing so, it kind of dissolves the body into it. It dissolves the body with it. So that can be really... Uh, really helpful at times. Other times, um, with different jhanas, but this may uh, this may be useful uh, with the fourth jhana, particularly again when that kind of leaning forward, or if that leaning forward um, occurs in the fourth jhana, with the sort of for whatever reasons we discussed a few possibilities there, but the intensity of the focus and conceiving of the the stillness and the nimitta uh, in front of us. Sometimes it's really helpful to um, feel that you, or the body, or energy body, is kind of falling backwards into a jhanic realm. And you conceive it backwards, but in addition to just conceiving it behind you, you actually also fall back into it. In a way, again, you're working differently with the attention. It's a different mode of attention to be probing forwards or trying to enter, penetrate in front something in front of me than it is to fall backwards. And that's different from something within me, this vertical column that I'm expanding outwards. Um, So there's different, we talked about different modes of attention, different conceptions of kind of uh, the directionality of the attention. The same thing with the jhana in relation to the nimitta and the whole body in relation to the jhanic nimitta. So, um, one other thing about the fourth jhana, we mentioned when we talked about the Buddha's description, what's left is nothing but this pure, bright awareness, wrapped in this cloth of pure, bright awareness, was his description of the fourth jhana. And then we talked at other times about kind of the idea of mixing cooking ingredients to move between jhanas. So... Uh, I kind of mentioned this as just an extension of a point I've already made on, on, on the retreat. If I uh, I can turn up the sense of presence in the, in the fourth jhana, um, and that will take me, because presence is consciousness, consciousness is presence, so to speak, 
turning up that sense of presence. So rather than stillness, I said a different perspective on the fourth jhana is to notice the sense of presence, and that will take me to the uh, to the sixth jhana, the infinite consciousness. It will begin to open that up. It's already there. The fourth jhana is already pregnant with it. It's already implicit in the fourth jhana. But another way you can think of this is kind of like with, with those cooking ingredients. I mix mix a bit of this, add a bit of more of this ingredient to this jhana, and it will take me to another jhana. So really you could say we're adding more presence to the fourth jhana, adding even more. But how are we adding it? By tuning to what's already there. So here it's different than cooking. The tuning to the sense of presence, again, when I notice it, when I... Uh, tuned to it, it amplifies it. So effectively I'm adding more of that particular ingredient into my cooking pot and the fourth jhana uh, will will then change into the sixth jhana. I've turned up the, the sense of presence just by tuning to it and uh, amplifying it. The tuning to it does amplify it and that turns up and it, and it goes to the sixth jhana. Anyway, of course, there is a very, there should be, as I mentioned, a very strong sense of presence in the, in the, uh, uh, in the fourth jhana. Um, uh, it's almost spellbound. The mind is spellbound, but still, we can m- increase things and uh, by tuning to them, increase certain factors within the jhana, and then that can sometimes just help that jhana consolidate. I said often. Uh, uh, kind of, it's very common for fourth jhana to, with a lot of experience to get just a little bit dull. So just turn up that sense of presence. But if I really then tune into the sense of presence and hone in on that, I'm amplifying it, and that can take me to the sixth jhana. Um, one thing that I mentioned that the, uh, the Buddha says, technically the breath stops. In the fourth jhana, whatever we think about the so-called biological reality of that, that will be the meditator's experience. It's hard to locate a sense of breath um, in the fourth jhana. It feels as if the body has stopped breathing. But be careful. Don't try to assess, is this the fourth jhana, by keeping, by keeping on checking whether your breath has stopped. That's not the right way of... Uh, it's not going to be helpful. Um, just as checking whether thought has stopped, I said... Um, that's not going to be a helpful way of checking whether you're in the second jhana. Doing that kind of thing, checking my breath, has it stopped now, hasn't stopped yet, um, that's this, you know, in a way it's kind of reinforcing that pattern that I talked about, this micro-pattern in our psychology, micro-pattern in the chitta, the sankharas of the mind, um, to just give attention to the negative, to look for what's not quite right, what's not quite measuring up. Rather, just get into the stillness. And the stillness is there. Am I in the fourth jhana yet? Just get into the stillness. Really enjoy it. Really be with it with a very alive attention. Really see if you can penetrate into that stillness. See if you can dissolve into that stillness. If that stillness can dissolve into you. The mind, the body dissolving into the stillness. The stillness um, dissolving into and dissolving the mind and body. That's what we need to do. And it will mature into the fourth jhana if, if there's that alive attention and that kind of right right attention with it rather than just keep checking whether the breath has stopped 
someone wrote me a note actually, I mentioned this about, about breath. So this person was obviously working around the territory of the second jhana, I'm guessing from the note. Seems very clear. Um, it's a quick and possibly silly question. Does it matter if the breathing is through the nose or the mouth? A combination of a cold plus an enormous grin indicates probably the second jhana. Um, open mouth, open mouthed means I sometimes breathe through the mouth. So she's got, she had a cold, and there was this enormous grin, and so she finds herself breathing through the mouth. But then she says, and sometimes it feels like it dissipates the strength of piti or sukha. Breathing through the mouth actually dissipated the piti or the sukha. So um, I would say, um, if it's from the grin, you don't have to stop your grin. The grinning is good and fine. Um, but probably it's the case that you can just very minutely almost move the position of your tongue against your teeth and that will somehow allow you to keep grinning um, without the mouth actually being open and then you can breathe through your nose so that we can have a full grin if I think pretty sure if the tongue try it if the tongue is in a certain position uh, we should be able to breathe through the nose because it may well be that when we breathe through the mouth, in fact it often is, when we breathe through the mouth, the breath isn't allowed to become more subtle. So uh, what the Buddha calls the bodily formations, the breath, are not allowed to become more subtle. And with that, the chitta is, is kind of, um, it's harder for the chitta to become more subtle. And if we're trying to be in jhanas, it's characterized by refinement of um, body energy, awareness and, and, and uh, sort of body energy uh, uh, vibration and the refinement and subtlety of the chitta. You have to be that for jhana. So if we're getting in the way um, by breathing through the mouth, by keep, and that keeps the breath unsubtle, then it can be a problem. So if it's possible, if, if it's not because of the cold, if it's just because of the grin, there's probably um, things one can do with the tongue to start with. It allows breathing through the nose and then maybe um, if one is ready anyway, it goes beyond the second jhana. Continue with the nose breath, and the whole thing gets more subtle. If it's a cold, or a bad cold, well, you'll probably just have to breathe through the mouth and put up with it for a while. However, uh, as the chitta gets more subtle, um, if, it, if it can, and it's still, you know, it's not completely prevented by, by breathing through the mouth at all. It's not complete, that won't completely block things. You should find, as the chitta gets more subtle, the breath will get more subtle. And then even with a heavy cold, um, so this might even take, uh, you know, going, avoiding the breath at first, going via what you remember of energy body vibrations of different states, of different jhanic states, or just remembering a jhana. But if you get in the, in the territory where the chitta is subtle, then the breath will become subtle again. Body affects mind, breath affects mind, mind affects body and breath. Um, so if the chitta can be can be kind of just helped to become more subtle, even if we have a bad cold and we're breathing through the mouth, the breath will become more subtle. And because the breath is more subtle, actually less air is being moved. And less air being moved, you might find actually that even with a relatively blocked nose, a quiet blocked nose, can actually still breathe breathe through the nose because we're not actually breathe, we're not actually moving that much air and the little amount of air can find its way through the, through the blocked nose 
But it's not that we're trying to make that happen, it's just that we're, we're helping the chitta to become, or allowing the chitta to become more subtle. Naturally that allows the breath to become more subtle, and effortlessly we will probably find that we're breathing through the nose, or nose breathing is happening, without us kind of you know, trying to manipulate that physically. Um, okay, couple of things um, just to finish. Two more things. One is um, so we talked on the last night about insight ways of looking that unfabricate and that um, potentially move through the jhanic stages in their process of unfabricating. However, I don't think in that practice the primary point or the primary aim is to necessarily learn a degree of skill that controls an insight way of looking to the degree that I can kind of stop the elevator exactly where I want to an exact jhana. Um, that's a you know that's a good skill, um, but it's not the most important thing there. What's much more important, and this is important to understand, what's much more important is that in that process of playing with insight ways of looking, we understand the principle of lessening fabrication. We understand the principle of unfabricating to whatever degree. Through this insight way of looking, um, uh, um, there's less clinging, and because there's less clinging, there's more letting go, which is just saying the same thing. And because of that, because of dependent rising, there's less fabrication. And so the experience opens up, refines out in these different ways. So understanding that principle of lessening fabrication through insight ways of looking is really, really important. Understanding how to fabricate less. And thirdly, understanding what exactly is involved in uh, subtle clinging. So I use this word clinging, I said, in a very stretchy way. It means all the way from the most gross to the most subtle aspects of the relationship of the chitta with phenomenal experience that we wouldn't usually think of as clinging. Um, really, really subtle. So that in the end, even avidya, in the Mahayana, even avidya, even ignorance, is a kind of clinging. Even believing looking at something and the unconscious belief that it inherently exists, which is what most human beings do most of the time, most of their lives, most of, with most of phenomenal experience. Just that unconscious, unnoticed, very common belief and assumption in the inherent existence of whatever is in, in uh, perception, in consciousness at any time, we could call that avijja, but in the Mahayana they also call it clinging. It's a very subtle level of clinging, and I use clinging uh, in that sense too. Um, so, understanding the principle of, of lessening fabrication through insight ways of looking. Secondly, how do I fabricate less? How, uh, actually using these insight ways of looking, and getting familiar with them, and getting developing the art and skill of them. And thirdly, what exactly is going on here? Uh, what exactly is involved in subtle clinging? What subtle clinging is being let go of here? Uh, and what avidya is, is being let go of here? So avidya is also has a whole range of um, aspects, but also levels to it, from very, very gross, of course, complete, deluded thinking, etc., to very, very subtle and clinging as well. So what exactly is involved in subtle clinging, subtle avidya, if that's what we're talking about?
And lastly, fourth thing, to understand the implications of all that. The implications of the way less clinging, less avicca fabricates, uh, results in less fabrication right then in the moment. In the moment of looking, in the moment of relating, a way of looking. In other words, understanding dependent arising and emptiness, as we as we touched on to some extent in the retreat. So all those, all that, those understandings, those four understandings, are much more the point than um, being able to control and kind of uh, uh, just I'll, I'll I'll be able to exactly go to this jhana and not overstep it to the next jhana or whatever when I unfabricate through a certain insight way of looking. So as always, the insight is more important than the somatic experience. Okay, last thing, I want to read to you a fairly long note from someone on, and this is quite important, and for those of you that are familiar with soul-making, it's very important. For those of you who are not yet familiar with soul-making dharma, but who may be one day familiar with soul-making dharma, drama, (laughs) drama, yeah, um, Dharma, uh, it, it may well be very important. So it's a little bit involved and it's a slightly long note, but I, I feel it's really, really crucial. And uh, it also expands our sense of how we might go about jhanic practice, jhana practice, especially when we have some soul making uh, background, soul making dharma, and soul making practice background. So this person wrote, This has been a Dukkha-full retreat for me. Lots of dukkha. So much pain and struggle around desire and sustaining intention and effort. As always, I asked um, I asked for permission to share this note, as always. And uh, that was fine with her. So, for me, so much pain and struggle around desire and sustaining intention and effort, the kind of things we were addressing and talking about and trying to open up and inquire into it several times on the retreat. And so she continues, Your teaching on desire and soul-making Uh, the last few nights, finally prompted me to try to go into the dukkha last night, to hold and sense it with soul, and to see what images of the path and self, and the self on it, images of the path and images of the self on the path might arise. There were several beautiful and meaningful images that came from sensing the dukkha like this, and that felt like they began to clarify uh, what I want from practice, and to give non-pathologizing place to some long-standing and painful patterns in my life. I won't go into this now. What I want to say is that later on last night, there was a lot of frustration around, and I felt some confidence from the above-mentioned experience about going in through the dukkha. So as skillfully as possible, I let the frustration rip, naming all the smallnesses and solidities in myself that I'm utterly sick of, tuning to the power rather than the poison of this emotion or energy. We talked about that as well uh, in the retreat at some point. I didn't sense self-judgment in it, just clarity and fire. It's really, really important, this. Out of this, a sense of space opened. And in that space, as I was breathing, I became aware of a very subtle sense of the energy body breathing with me. This was the language that came, and it had soul resonances. My sense of the energy body was that they, the energy body, were creatively and definitely other than me. So rather than I am the energy body, or it's me, or it's part of me, the sense was that they were definitely 
creatively and definitely other than me. So we talk about two-ness in soul-making practice sometimes. They were taking up a space somewhat larger than my physical body, though overlapping with it, and I had a strong sense of their autonomy and intelligence. I've not really worked with energy body as image, rather than as the terrain in which image and sensitivity to image arise. But I've heard you speak to this possibility, so I really tried to lean into it, uh, using the nodes of the lattice to tune and sense. And what opened was a gorgeous sense of tuness with the energy body, and a sense that they, the energy body, were taking me under their wing, teaching me how to be in the right relationship with them. I would say that my relationship with PT on this retreat, and in general, has been pretty dysfunctional, tight with self and grasping and aversion. When PT arose in this experience with the energy body last night, though, it felt like they, the energy body, were giving it to me. They were giving it to me, saying, here, try feeling this, and holding it for me while I worked and played, taking the pressure off and coaching me to try different things. I found I could stay with intensities and subtleties I hadn't been able to stay with before, because now they were being given to me as gift by this beautiful, unfathomable other. It was freeing and energizing and humbling. So I'd be interested to hear any thoughts you have, and specifically around allowing and inviting a sense, allowing or inviting a sense of imaginal other into the base practice. In some ways, what unfolded wasn't all that different from the energy body-based practices you outlined on this retreat, but there was a strong sense of being in tuneness with mysterious otherness that ignited and aligned my desire, intention, and effort, where they've been quite confused or limp through most, much of this retreat. I still feel very far from jhana, but I feel like I've begun to see the possibility of writing something in relation to why and how I practice. Thank you for reading all this. I'm sorry it's so long. Um, and then a P.S. Actually, a couple more thoughts around intention. My intention in working with the frustration was for soul-making rather than samadhi. It was a surprise to me when the PT arose, and even when it did, I'd say the intention continued to be predominantly for soul-making, for the beauty of that dimensional relationship with the energy body. In subsequent sittings, with the intention for samadhi, so she returned with, to the intention for samadhi, I've tried to invite that imaginal sense of the energy body, but they haven't come. So perhaps it, it's that this soulful experience with the energy body now becomes part of the fant fantasy operating the background of samadhi practice. That was one of the options, uh, if you remember, that I talked about. We work with an image and then it goes into the background as a fantasy and helps support things. Or, she continues, or I can choose to pick it up more intentionally in soul-making practice? Question mark. So I wrote, I didn't have time, but I wrote a quick note uh, back to her and suggested she did the second of those options. Choose to pick it up more intentionally as a soul-making practice, with the intention for soul-making, not for samadhi. So something had happened here for you know, good reason, some difficulty, some knots, over the time, around intention and desire and goal. Those things that we were um, dwelling on and returning to several times in the retreat. So much um, importance, uh, so much uh, need to give careful attention to that, to inquire into that, to find right relationship with desire, intention, goal, aim, direction. 
So a kind of a long-standing history of dukkha and entanglement and difficulty there. So actually, my sense was here, much, much more helpful, stay with the soul-making. Look, something extremely important and extremely beautiful has just happened. A real gift, a real grace, you feel that. And um, something that is perhaps the beginning of a much more profound and long-lasting healing. If I think I'm on a jhana retreat, I want to catch up with the others or whatever it is, and I rush too quickly back to the samadhi intention, something hasn't been allowed to ripen. It needs, to me, it sounded like it needed longer in in that intention. Stay with the soul-making intention. That's what opened things up. Anyway, it's delivering something beautiful. It's delivering um, the PT and the gorgeousness, etc. And something is being healed. And something is also being uh, ensouled. The dukkha is being ensouled. The energy body is being ensouled. Lots of things. Lots of things are happening that are really profoundly important. Maybe more important than whether I attain uh, X jhana right now. Or even in the next months or whatever it is. So that was my brief encouragement in a note back. And I, 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 I really think that's important. Um, and I got a short response saying, um, thank you, wonderful. I'm so ready to put down the intention for samadhi. Um, I don't know if I was hearing it right, but I was a little concerned getting that note that there's a, there's a difference making a choice. Okay, now I'm going to intend... Uh, have a soul-making intention rather than a samadhi intention. We talked about the intention really being the primary thing that drives this or that practice, whether I'm navigating a fork in the road between insight ways of looking and samadhi or soul-making and samadhi or whatever it is. Uh, It's the intention uh, that's really important for a number of reasons. But there's a difference between intention coming out of an aversion and a fed-upness, and an intention coming out of uh, love and desire and a sense of grace um, and wanting something. Wanting something is different. Uh, wanting soul-making is different than just really not wanting to be anymore with a certain intention for somebody. So I'm well not sure, and um, it was right at the end of the retreat, so I don't know, but I didn't get a chance to find out or respond. But I, I would just... And it may not be the case at all for this person, but I think my, my, what I want to say right now is careful about these kind of choices. It's a, it's a different thing, and where there's been a ha- habit of aversion or making choices out of aversion or getting so fed up uh, with a certain situation or situations or how things are unfolding or not unfolding that we feel a lot of aversion and frustration and then the intention is coming out of that. That Intention coming from aversion will have a different effect than an intention coming out of love for something, or eros for something, or responding to an invitation of an erotic beloved other. You understand? This is really, really important. And I I would guess that they will unfold differently. Because there was the same move, but the intention is slightly... I'm choosing the soul-making intention over the samadhi intention, but the intention, the dominant intention, is slightly different. One is eros, and one is aversion. And uh, that probably will make a difference. So as I said, I don't know if it's the case with this person, 
but uh, it's a, the, the point is bearers making um, in, in a general way because it applies very, very widely. So this is all part of getting wise to desire and eros and uh, and this whole territory. These meta questions are so so important. How we how we uh, respond to them, how we hold them, and how we choose in relationship to them. Okay. So that's all I wanted to add as sort of P.S. to the whole retreat. I hope I hope some of that has been helpful or will be helpful at some point. Actually, one one last thing I forgot. Uh, someone was asking about resource, and I had mentioned from the beginning of the retreat and emphasized the ability of jhanas, our practice of jhanas, to really form and open up for us a profound resource uh, of well-being uh, in our life and really stressing that their function, their potential function for us as deep resources. So just to um, elaborate on this a little bit and draw out some of the other things I've been saying, so to, to make something clear here, that this person was asking. So yeah, if one only um, experiences a jhana, you know, once or twice or a few times, um, it might be that shortly, you know, for some period after those jhanic experiences, if, if they're strong or whatever, that there is um, a relatively short-lived sense of resource, of happiness, of well-being, of energy, etc. The kind of um, unshakability that might come with that, even from just uh, feeling so happy or whatever it is. Excuse me. But the danger, as I think I've alluded to already on the retreat, the danger with only having jhanic experience a few times is that then it goes and it's not around and it may become, through the memory, uh, an object of attachment and duality with what we experience now uh, compared to the jhanic experience. And then it's not really, uh, it's run out of any anything it's giving us as a resource, it's not providing anything as a resource. But even worse than that, it's actually uh, fostering a, a sense of uh, suffering through the duality, through the attachment to the memory, etc. Much more significant is uh, when we are able to frequently practice and experience a, a jhanic state, um, perhaps every day or um, maybe a couple of times a day, whatever it is, in our busy lives, etc. Or maybe, maybe not even every day, but regularly enough um, that it functions as a more uh, constant source, like a well that isn't going dry, and uh, or a spring. And uh, there's a sense of replenishment that it brings, of rejuvenation, um, of energy. The energy is being replenished, rejuvenated, and um, a deep emotional well-being that of different flavors and kinds, uh, depending on what genre we're talking about. But that deep emotional well-being allows us or supports us, helps us to stay steady and to meet difficulties, to sustain our 
creative projects, the work that we're doing, when there is difficulty to sustain our service work, if that's what we're involved in, our activism, or whatever it is. And through the ups and downs, through the knocks, through the slog of that. And sometimes it might be, you know, work that's not uh, either well paid financially or we're not getting any uh, pats on the back for it or recognition or even no one else seems to notice. But this dipping in regularly, drinking from these wells, these beautiful springs of uh, cool, clear water, will definitely... um, provide resource in our life. But there's a third, uh, there's a second way that I want to emphasize, and actually, in a way, it's implicit in stuff I said on the retreat, but I really want to draw it out to make it clear. Um, Long-term, repeated uh, immersion, exposure to, immersion in and exposure to, uh, you know, jhanic states, let's say, second jhana and above, I would say, long-term repeated immersion and drinking from that and suffusing the body in that and uh, dissolving and being absorbed in that, long-term repeated uh, practice of jhanas will open and deepen the sense we have of what a human being is, what we are as human beings, but also what other human beings are. It opens and deepens the very sense of the dimensionality of human beings. So human, is our sense of our own being becomes dimensional. I said near the beginning of the retreat, the jhanas become almost like dimensions of human being. They're also dimensions of being more generally, or cosmic being especially as we go deeper into the jhanas, so that opening and deepening a sense of the dimensionality, not just of our own being, and human being, but also of the cosmos. And it's this, at, a, at another, in addition to the way it worked as a resource uh, just described, it's this, this opening up of the sense of dimensionality that even if, for some reason, later in our life, uh, the jhanas are not accessible. Maybe there's certain life situations where we're just not able to practice for some reason. Maybe there's a severe illness. Maybe there's medicine trying to treat a severe illness and that medicine is having all kinds of difficult uh, side effects and preventing clarity of mind or preventing concentration or preventing mental energy or whatever it is. Uh, for whatever other reason, even when the jhanas become not accessible, they still function. Something has been seen and sensed and known by the being, by the chitta, so that they still function after all that time, and it could be years, um, as a resource. One senses still and knows something, knows something about one's own being, about human being and about uh, the cosmos. And that uh, knowledge, if you like, if we call that sense of things, is there. Uh, Even if one can't uh, touch it or see it right now. You understand? It's It's imprinted on the psyche, on the chitta, on the heart and mind so profoundly and opened up and changed and dimensionalized the sense of things. 
um, that one knows it's true, and that even when one can't touch it anymore. And that knowledge acts uh, as long-term, long-term support for the citta, for the soul. As I said, even when, including when, um, circumstances in one way or another may be very, very challenging. So there's uh, two two levels there, if you like, of of the the way in which jhanas can function as a, a really uh, profound and helpful resource for our lives and for meeting life and opening to life and uh, doing serving what we want to serve in life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.